Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. And in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's a real honor to have Carol Dweck on the podcast. Dr. Dweck is a leading researcher in the field of motivation and is the Lewis and Virginia Eden Professor of Psychology at Stanford. Her research examines the role of mindsets in personal achievement and organizational effectiveness. Dr. Dweck has also held professorships at Columbia and Harvard Universities, has lectured to education, business, and sports groups around the world, has addressed the United Nations, has been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the National Academy of Sciences, and has won 12 Lifetime Achievement Awards for her research. Her best-selling book, Mindset, has been widely influential and has been translated into over 25 languages. Dr. Dweck, so great to chat with you today. Scott, it's great to chat with you. Oh boy, there's so much to talk about. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about starting with your earliest sort of dissertation research because I remember 2003, I remember I was studying intelligence. I was reading a book I really enjoyed reading of yours. It was one of these, it was an academic book. It was, it was, it was short. It was short and it, and it went through, it didn't use the language mindsets. This is like back in the day, it was incremental versus uh, entity, right? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about this or this earliest research? Well, yeah, uh, I'd love to tell you about it. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was kind of gripped by a question. Uh, why did some kids 
shy away from challenges and crumble at the first sign of failure, while other kids, no smarter or more able at the task, seem to relish taking on challenges and thrive in the face of obstacles. Mm. And pretty soon I found the question was a little bit wrong. It wasn't just that some kids thrived, wanted challenge or coped with obstacles. I found out that some of the kids loved setbacks. They said things like, uh, I love a challenge. I was hoping this would be informative. And I thought, I'm giving them failure problems. And they're thinking this makes it worth their while. I couldn't relate to them at all. I thought they were from another planet. But I thought, I'm going to figure out their secret I'm going to bottle it and I'm going to take a few healthy swigs of it myself because <laughs> uh, uh, I thought I have a lot to learn from these 10-year-old kids. That's how I got started on this research. Wow. So it sounds like the original observation was more a behavioral finding than a cognitive mindset finding, um, yeah. the way you described it. That's so interesting. I wanted to figure out the cognitive underpinnings of it. And one reason was it was personally relevant. My sixth grade teacher, I, I kind of figured this out later that it was me, as we say, me search, not just research. Oh my gosh, that's what we all do, right? Yeah. yeah. And I recommend it because you never get enough of it. My sixth grade teacher had seated us around the room in IQ order. We were already the top IQ class in the sixth grade of five classes. And yet she thought every IQ point was monumentally important um, in not only telling you uh, how smart you are, but whether you had good character, could be trusted, and essentially what you were worth in her eyes. Spending the whole year in that classroom, I was really influenced. Now, you might think, oh, um, I felt downtrodden and unappreciated. No, I was in the first row, first seat. You would think, oh, I won that IQ prize. But as I looked back, I realized I never wanted challenges again. And I arranged my life to be purely successful, not to topple from my height. So I wanted to figure out what goes on in people's minds that can allow them to risk taking on challenges and that can give them the fortitude to keep going when things seemed rough. Yeah, uh, it's such a, a great question, an important question. I was the opposite. I was I was in special education as a kid. I don't know if I ever told you that uh, for yes. an, an auditory an auditory uh, processing disability. So people thought I was really slow, a slow learner because I was having trouble hearing things in real time. And sort of the, the impact of expectations can, can certainly have an effect on, 
on the mindsets, I'm sure, and the way we think about things. I'm wondering, when did the shift from entity and incremental become fixed versus growth? That was when I wrote the book Mindset. I realized nobody can remember entity and incremental. (laughs) I always had trouble remembering that myself. (laughs) Which is if they couldn't remember entity and they couldn't remember incremental. So when I came to write the book Mindset, I said, well, I have to find some more user-friendly terms. But kind of a prior question is how, if we just call it mindsets now, how how did we get to the point of thinking that mindsets could play a role? Absolutely. And I ask this because, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't entity and incremental, they were called beliefs in, in your language, your original language. There were beliefs, not mindsets. Is that right? Yeah, but I kind of mean the same thing. Okay. I'd Bef- love to hear more about in, that. Yeah. In my earliest work... I looked at attributions kids made for their successes and failures. Did they think the failure measured their ability or did they think the failure meant try a new strategy, seek advice, just keep going? But eventually we said, why does failure have such a negative meaning for some kids and kind of an informative meaning for other kids. And in the early 1980s, working with Mary Bandura, Al Bandura's daughter. I was going to (laughs) ask. We suddenly realized, you know, when you think you're being measured and that judgment is really important, doesn't that kind of imply that you have this fixed thing that's being judged? And if you think it's just a, a failure, is, is, it's just a clue for changing your strategy or trying harder or getting input and then learning more, doesn't that kind of imply that you think your ability can be developed And suddenly we looked at each other, it just bowled us over. What if people have fundamentally different ideas about intelligence and they're carting them around with them and it's affecting how they view challenges, how they view setbacks? Well, um, you know, there was no stopping us at that point. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break and talk about my new book that's coming out April 7th. It's called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Really excited to present this book to you all. It it uh, represents the culmination of many, many years of hard work and um, and uh, synthesis. What I've, been, what I've done in this book is I've taken Maslow's classic hierarchy of needs, and I've revised it for the 21st century, trying to bring back humanistic psychology. I think that the field of humanistic psychology in the 50s and 60s really got a lot right about humanity and the creative possibilities of humans, as well as the humanitarian and spiritual possibilities. Really hoping this book can uh, present a vision of humanity that transcends us all and helps us connect deeper with each other, but also help us reach our greatest potential individually and collectively. 
So if you want to check out this book, you can actually pre-order it right now on Amazon as well as other. There's independent bookstores I think you can pre-order it from. And and then on April 7th, starting April 7th, it should be in bookstores. A lot of people have been wondering throughout the years how they can support me and the Psychology Podcast. And here, here's the time. You know, you're always welcome to uh, contribute money to the podcast, help support it. If you're a longtime listener or even short-time listener, you want to not only support the podcast, but dive deeper into a lot of the concepts and ideas we talk about constantly on this show. This is a, a great way to do that by buying this book. So please check the book out and uh, let me know what you think. There was a good confluence of research around that as well, because I remember my colleague Joshua Aronson was also doing some research that I think contributed to that, just this overall idea of the malleability of our beliefs. Back, Joshua Aronson and his colleagues, Catherine Good, Mickey Inslicht, um, right. Carrie Freed, they, um, they did some of the first mindset interventions Yes. Uh, before we published any interventions. We had published mindset experiments where we measured or changed people's mindsets within an experimental situation to look at the impact. But Joshua Aronson, Catherine Good, and their colleagues did the first actual interventions where they changed students' mindsets and compared to a control group. They, they taught a growth mindset, the idea that abilities can be developed, and looked at what happened to grades or achievement test scores over time. Those were the first, I would say, landmark studies that took some of the ideas we had developed and really put them to the test. Really, for the first time, fulfilled my dream of bottling it. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what were these kids' secrets? And delivering it. So that was very exciting research. And we followed it with... Um, some, these were in-person interventions. We followed it a few years later with a study, Blackwell, Tresniewski, and Dweck, 2007. We were very excited that we could, that others and we could do these in-person interventions that could have an impact on grades or achievement test scores. This was very, very exciting, but it was limited. It was limited because it cost a fortune. We, for the Blackwell studies, we had a big grant from the uh, William T. Grant Foundation we had something like a dozen research assistants that went out to the school um, several times a week. And um, you can't scale that up. So that posed a big problem. I could see that. I could see that. You could validate the ideas 
but you couldn't really scale it up. Then two kind of big things happened. One was that uh, Dave Panescu, a Stanford PhD, created a platform for delivering educational interventions online to schools. Of course, then we had to create interventions that were amenable to that. We had to kind of distill the mindset interventions. Can you describe one of the interventions? Like what, if I was one of the kids, what would I see? Well, I'll tell you what we do now. Um, we built upon we built upon these interventions, and the early ones had a lot of this, but I'll tell you what we do now. The mindset interventions are aimed at adolescents because they're self-administered. Like ninth, ninth graders? You've done a lot with ninth graders, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Ninth graders and older. Um, so first... The downfall of a lot of adolescent interventions is that people say to them, hey, we're grownups and we know how you should think. Well, you've already lost them, right? That's not what teenagers are. I wouldn't start there. I wouldn't start there. So we start with, hey, we're developing these programs. We study learning. We're experts in that. But you're the expert, say, in the in high school or the transition to high school, uh, whichever is appropriate. And we need to learn from you what it's like and how we can change our program in the future to take advantage of your knowledge. We respect them in so many other ways. First, we explain the growth mindset in terms of the neuroscience of learning with graphs and so on, um, in a way that really treats them like the intelligent people they are. We have quotes from older students who have been through a version of the program before. Uh, We have quotes from esteemed figures in the world. We just found them on social media or the internet. And we also have exercises originally created by Joshua Aronson to internalize a growth mindset. We said, hey, um, suppose there's a ninth grade student next year and this student is struggling. Could you write a letter to this student and giving them encouragement in terms of the growth mindset principles you've learned. And we kind of list those principles and they then they write a personal letter to the student. These letters are really kind of heartwarming. Um, we also tell them why they'd want to have a growth mindset. Now, to us nerds, why, why, why they didn't want to have a growth mindset and, and grow a stronger brain. To us nerds, that's obvious. Give me more of those IQ points. I want a stronger brain. That's kind of the coin of our realm, the brain, a strong brain. 
a smart brain. But that may not be true for everyone. And so now we say, um, we, we ask them to think about how a stronger brain can help them with their goals in life. So what are your goals in life? What would you like to contribute? And how can a stronger brain help you? These are, uh, so this is the kind of intervention that we've developed. And in our big, biggest study to date, we worked about two years to hone it. Uh, two years of honing the program and piloting, re-honing and re-piloting. Is that the National Study of Learning Mindsets? Yes. That's the big mama. Yes. We had a um, pre-registered large-scale study before that, but this was the big mama of pre-registered. The the, um, hypotheses were pre-registered. The analyses were pre-registered. But let me back up and say, this was a wacky idea. (laughs) (laughs) Which one? What was? The national study. Okay, not growth mindset theory. (laughs) That's pretty wacky too. (laughs) But um, in around 2015, David Yeager, professor at the University of Texas now, had this wacky idea. He convened a White House conference to kind of air the idea. I would say the idea was foolhardy. (laughs) Um, But he's kind of visionary. And so we all went along with it. And we all worked super hard on it. Um, But it is kind of wacky that you can think about delivering a growth mindset intervention to a large national sample of um, ninth graders making that transition. Was it it nationally representative? Yes. Wow. Okay. Was nationally representative. One of the first psychological interventions or maybe the to be done with a nationally representative sample. Um, David engaged a series of uh, several research firms, one to constitute the sample and conduct um, the intervention, supervise the interventions, one to harvest the data. So it was really hands-off. He also engaged um, a group of Bayesian statisticians to analyze the data blind to make sure that our analyses were entirely seaworthy. Yeah, so across the nation went out our um, two sessions, total of 50 minutes, growth mindset intervention versus a control intervention that looked very much the same but just taught about the brain and its functions, but didn't teach a growth mindset. I see. And I think one of the most 
wonderful <laughs> parts of this study was this. We oversampled sites where we thought it wouldn't work. I think it's unusual for researchers to seek their own non-replication. Well, you were curious what context it might not work, right? Yes. So where doesn't it replicate? Mm -hmm. No psychological anything works everywhere. And what could we learn from that in order to improve our results and the results for kids in the future? We always want to know where are we wrong and what can we learn from? And we have a whole history of being somewhat wrong and learning from it. And I can enumerate that if you'd be interested. But first, I probably should finish the national. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Uh, and we'll, we'll have time to talk about that. But yeah, tell me about the results that you found to just finish up the thread on this big study. Yeah, absolutely. The first thing we found was that there was a meaningful increase in grade point average for the lower achieving kids who were in the growth mindset intervention group. They were the pre-registered group of targeted kids for the increase in um, grades. Do you know what the effect size was? The effect size was something that sounds small, 0.11. That's like you're talking about like 7,000, 7, was it 14,530? Was it something the, like the, that? The N, yeah. Depending on which analyses, something like, like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And which grades could be matched up. And, Wait, so that, that effect size you just uh, said, was that for the, uh, the low achieving group in particular or, okay, yeah. so, so it was even smaller for the average of everyone? Yes, okay. there was no effect as we had predicted for the higher achieving. Now, we went into the literature because that's about what we were getting in our pilot. Um, and you could say, whoa, that's negligible. Look at Cohen's effect sizes or Hattie's effect sizes for education. You would need like a microscope. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Class. But we went into the... I love that you have a microscope on your desk right there. I just want to call that out. That's pretty... Wait, can you do that again so I can take a screen capture of that? <laughs> I love that. Okay, God, I love that. So we went, uh, we went into the literature on educational interventions and we found something pretty startling. The most successful interventions with adolescents, even large scale expensive ones, seem to top out at about 0.2. Hmm. And when we're talking about long term outcomes like grades, not on a test a few days later for what you just taught, but grades over time, point two. When you look at adolescence, what's the effect of a year of schooling on achievement test scores, point two. What's the effect of an excellent teacher versus an average teacher for adolescence, point two. 
And um, uh, a big study that was done, funded through IES, on um, the most promising educational interventions, they too topped out at point two, when they were subjected to a rigorous test, um, they topped out at about 0.22, So the fact that we got half of that with a 5.0 minute intervention that cost like 25 cents, 50 cents, uh, really just the um, minimal, minimal. Um, we are excited. And then when we looked into the nudge literature, their most, uh, aside from opt-in, opt-out, which has huge effects, most of the famous effects are between 0.1 and 0.2. My gosh, there's just there's nothing that really like is dramatic. <laughs> yeah. And many medical effects that we can cite are kind of like that. So that was really eye-opening. It's eye-opening in a number of ways. One way I'm more shocked that how come no one's been able to develop an educational intervention that is striking, <laughs> you know, above 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things work better with younger kids, it's hard to reach adolescents. One-on-one tutoring with great tutors can get you more. But these kind of wholesale, large-scale interventions, it's just so multiply determined. There are so many reasons kids aren't achieving. There are so many reasons they may reject or not profit from an intervention. So, yeah. And I would even say uh, that you're, that I've actually seen larger effects than even that with the 2018 meta-analysis. They, they found an effect size, I think, of 0.34 for low SES, from students from low SES homes benefited from the mindset programs. I, I, I've seen effect size of 0.34. So that's even yeah. bigger. Yeah. yeah, that's even bigger. But, but they and, found very and, weak effects for, you know, other, just like you found for other, you know, higher achieving or highest, higher SES students. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so those, that larger effect size includes some of the face-to-face ones that did get larger. The, the Blackwell, the Aronsons, those did get larger effect sizes. But when you scale up and condense the program and you're not tailoring it or you're not really interacting with particular kids, and also the large scale are intent to treat. You've got kids in there who can't read, who can't pay attention on their own. Um, so that deflates the effect sizes. But it was just so eye-opening to see how hard it is to do anything. So we were pretty happy with what we could do. And also the fact, if you multiply it by all the kids who are ninth graders, that could you know, reorient some of them. 
The second finding was... I'm like on the edge of my seat here. <laughs> okay, <yeah>. Go, go <laughs> on. <laughs> Gosh, we were on the edges of our seats too. Um, so the second finding was, because you might say, oh, growth mindset interventions are not for higher, higher achieving kids. They're just for lower achieving kids. But that wouldn't be true. Across the achievement levels, we saw an increase in advanced math course taking, the electing of an advanced math course a year later in 10th grade. And this was even slightly greater among the higher achieving kids, probably because there were more advanced math courses in their schools or because um, uh, they had more of the foundation. But yes, more advanced math taking a year later. We were very excited about this. And again, although this was a few percentage points, that's what they get. And actually, Danny Kahneman, reviewing the nudge studies, said, hey, in the real world, a few percentage points, you know, again, multiplied by a lot of people at a low cost, that's pretty good. I think that is a fair point. Absolutely. You know, Matthew effects um, are important. You know, the rich get richer, poor get poorer kind of idea. These, these things can snowball, especially if you start really, really young. Yes. Yeah. They can snowball. And another way you can think of them over time is you do a little better, little choices along the way. It's not just one time. So you do a little better overall. You take an advanced math course. You graduate from high school. You choose to seek higher education. So just little, if you can shift enough of those little choices, you're having an impact. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about the conditions which didn't work because I think that'd be really useful to educators to hear. One thing you told me um, uh, or that, that is in the paper as well is that it didn't work when peer norms weren't favorable. Is that yeah. right? Can you elaborate what that means for teachers who are listening? So at the end of the second session of the mindset intervention and the control group, we asked kids whether they wanted to work, if there was enough time, whether they wanted to choose some problems that were easy and they'd be sure to get right. And we showed them that on a math worksheet um, that was keyed into their math curriculum, or challenging problems that they might, that were hard, but they could learn something useful. So for each school, just zeroing in on the control group, we could see, was this a school full of challenge-loving peers or challenge-denying peers? Mm -hmm. What we found was that when a child in the growth mindset condition dwelled within a challenge-rejecting school, we saw that 
the kids in the growth mindset condition were themselves choosing more challenging problems than their peers. But the question was, could they take their growth mindset out into the real world now and have it take root and flourish and turn into higher grades? And the answer was, when you have peers, if you take your kind of new or enhanced growth mindset learning and you look interested in schoolwork and you work harder and you ask the teacher for input or you start answering questions in class and your peers don't like that, you're not going to do it. So that's a really in, in, really interesting finding. And then another thing you said you're, you're writing up right now is potentially the role of teacher mindset. Like whether if a teacher has a fixed mindset, does that have an effect on, on the teaching? Yes. So... We, in the study, we studied math teachers in particular. That's a subject that kids find really hard. And yet we know that the future world is really wanting kids to be savvy in math, tech, etc. So we found that if you're math teacher, and now we're focusing on math grades, if your math teacher had more of a growth mindset, reported having more of a growth mindset, you showed enhanced, as you know, as a group on average, you showed enhanced grades in math uh, at the end of the year. But If your math teacher reported having a fixed mindset, the growth mindset intervention did not work. It did not take root. Again, at the end of the second session, these kids wanted challenges. But again, um, you kind of take it out into the world, your new or enhanced growth mindset, and you say, does it work here? So maybe you try a little harder. Does the teacher notice and respond? Maybe your grade goes up a little. Does the teacher notice and respond? Um, Maybe you look for opportunities to revise your work and get credit. Are there those opportunities? So we look at it now as the teachers creating either opportunities in the classroom or reactions in the classroom that support the nascent or newly increased growth mindset or that kind of nip it in the bud. Uh, are they good are they good coaches or not in a sense? No. Yeah. So here's this child coming off a growth mindset intervention, maybe willing to work harder willing to get more instruction, um, wanting to be recognized and appreciated by the teacher. Um, And it is or isn't there. I have a question. I was thinking as you were talking, there's such a focus in this research on academic achievement as the dependent variable. Have you looked at like the relationship between uh, growth mindset interventions and 
you know, there, there are other things in life, right? <laughs> so like what, like um, meaning in life or well-being or personal growth or hope or, um, you know, so, so many other things that, you know, social relationships, uh, other things that are important in school as well. Has anyone ever looked at other outcomes? Yes. Yay. Okay. I'm dying to hear what they found. <laughs> but interesting. Why do we focus on grades, test scores, et cetera? Um, well, first of all, they are important and they become more and more important in the modern world. Too. But um, we, and let me just stay in that domain for a minute. We think that a growth mindset gets you to the grades because of a greater desire for learning and a greater interest in errors. And neuroscience work by Mosher, Schroeder, and colleagues shows different brain responses to errors. So we're really in the business of creating more um, engaged learners but is the world going to listen if it doesn't lead to higher grades? We weren't so sure. Oh, that's so sad. I know it's sad. What if it leads to higher self-actualization? No one cares about that? <laughs> Not yet. You've got to measure that self-actualization in some way, right? Well, we can like get to that, higher, yeah. <laughs> higher income. No, that's not how I would I know. measure. Yeah, that's yeah. But what do people... Personal fulfillment. Doesn't personal fulfillment matter anymore these days? <laughs> Did it ever it, matter? To me, to me, personal fulfillment and contribution, that's the be-all and end-all. and Or personal fulfillment through contribution. That is the be-all or end-all. Personal growth. Yeah. Contribution. That's everything to me. But we also want to show the world that it does both. So you have, there are studies then that, that go beyond academic achievement. I'd love to see those studies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, right, so um, David Yeager has a whole line of research on changing um, mindsets about personality. He started it when he was a PhD student at Stanford. He's been very prolific in his career. I know, he's yeah. fantastic. And he, yeah, he he's visionary and the amount yeah. of energy he has is extraordinary. So anyway, he teaches, he did the groundwork and then did interventions, teaching kids that personality is not fixed. Personal skills, social skills need not be fixed. That Everybody is capable. Everybody has the potential for change. By the way, we don't say change is likely or inevitable. Or infinite. Or infinite. Not everyone can be, you know, 
intellectually gifted, right? Open question. Oh, that's um, interesting. But, yeah, but we don't we don't know who can or who can't. Let's just. But everyone has the potential for growth. The reason I say we don't know is we don't know what anyone's asymptote is. We don't know what anyone's like high point on their trajectory is. Uh, I don't want to be in the business of deciding in advance who can be brilliant and who can't because I take as my expert Albert Einstein. He says, I really was a slow learner. (laughs) He says, Everyone thought they understood light and mass and speed and energy. And I just kept saying, I don't get it. Well, he ended up reconceptualizing the whole thing. I've read that his early, I read that some of that was over, overplayed his early difficulties where when you actually look into it, he actually was a good student. No, I'm not talking about whether he was a good student. He was, he says, I was slow to understand. Mm. Others understood it faster than I did. But it turns out they didn't understand it as deeply as he did. Didn't he like, you know, he was sitting in the classroom and he was able to just imagine what it would be like being on a a beam of light Mm -hmm. flying through space. I mean, that seems like that came easier to him than others, that that visualization. But the point I'm trying to make <laughs> um, is that there were there have been many students who didn't seem promising to their teachers who went on to do great things. One of my most brilliant colleagues ever, and the late Anne Brown. Um, was uh, labeled retarded when she oh was gosh, a, I hate that word. a teenager in England because she hadn't yet learned to read. In my book, I talk about a scientist who, um, I think a Nobel Prize winner, but some a great scientist, he later in life found his school records and found out he had a pretty low or IQ, or a lower IQ than he thought. He says he might not have tried to be a scientist. So mm, I just, I don't like deciding in advance. I think that is a really good point. I've heard some uh, some thoughts from the giftedness, uh, gifted education community. Some of them have drawn on your work as suggesting that you're, like, you're denying the existence of intellectual giftedness at any point in time. And I was wanting to wanted to hear some of your thoughts on that. Oh no, I do not deny, and it's it should be clear from some of my writing and even in the book mindset. I don't deny that some kids are precocious mm. and um, should be supported. Every child should be challenged. I love that. Every child should be taught to love challenge and not allowed to be bored in school. If they want to take a college course and they're nine years old, I'm so totally in favor of that. I'm not in favor of parents pushing the kids constantly, but 
when that Ellen Winner calls it the rage to learn is there. The rage to master, yeah. Yeah, the rage to master. Yeah, go with it. A lot of educators have wrongly interpreted. So again, in mindset, I talk about these incredibly precocious kids. Mm-hmm. People have uh, said, oh, cut out, gifted, and talented in my name, have said cut out, gifted, and talented programs, um, have said, you know, homogenized kids and um, in ways that don't challenge the kids who are more advanced. I don't agree with that. You're not saying that. On the, for the record, you're not saying that. Okay, cool. I think that'll really uh, make a lot of people in the gifted education community really happy to hear that. I don't say there aren't things to change and learn. I think um, kids, kids who are way advanced must be kept engaged in learning, not just being gifted and talented, must love challenges. Again, rather than thinking, oh, if I make mistakes, maybe they won't think I'm a genius. Don't make them into who I was in Mrs. Wilson's class. Learn from what almost happened to me. That's interesting. You know, when you think of the work you've done and the importance of praising effort, Mm-hmm. You could see how a child who is very, very precocious, who things do come very easy for them and um, they can just quickly memorize things and ace tests without studying. If, if you apply that, that theory of teaching them, praising them for their effort, that, that will feel quite inauthentic to those students, don't you think? Yes. So we, we say more than praising the effort. It happened in that series of studies. We chose one form of process praise. Um, But growth mindset has sometimes been oversimplified to say it's about effort and praising effort. And as you say, it would be inauthentic to praise their effort. And um, And also, I I am wondering, is it really bad to praise intelligence? Is that bad? We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, Um, we'll get to to that. (laughs) Back to this precocious child. If they're challenged... They should sometimes be struggling and working hard. You can encourage them uh, to try different strategies if they're stuck. You can show their progress over time. And you can show how the effort yielded some results over time. If they're only doing stuff that is quick and easy, then you don't get a chance to keep them loving and respecting and appreciating the process. So kids at every level of current ability should be shown that challenges are interesting, easy is boring, that when they're stuck, try new strategies, enlist aid, ramp up the effort and see the progress. All kids should be doing that. 
Good. I'm really glad that we talked about that. I I saw an interesting study by Leon Bates from 2017 that I don't think was published. I emailed Timothy Bates about this and he hasn't responded yet to my email. So I, I want to say on the record, I, it was just a preprint I found. But they found an interesting thing. They found that children's mindsets showed no relationship to IQ. So it was uncorrelated to IQ, school grades, or change in grades across the school year, with the only significant result being in the reverse direction, better performance in children holding a fixed mindset. I wonder from a causal perspective, if you do genuinely have an a extraordinarily high IQ, and, and some kids do at certain points in time, and I'm right there with you, by the way, Carol, we shouldn't write off kids you know, with the lower IQs or kids with lower achievements. So I'm right there with you. But there are kids who do have extraordinarily high IQs. You could see from a causal perspective that they could actually rightfully develop a fixed mindset if things are coming that easily to them that actually matches their reality more than lower IQ students. And I wanted to see what you thought about that. I'm, I'm really interested in that. Cool. Um, a fixed, if you have, um, if you have a fixed mindset and you say to yourself, it's fixed and I've got it and you never doubt it. Oh, that'll be tricky when they actually do face challenges someday. Right. Maybe, but in the moment, until that happens, they could be fine. They could be fine, yeah. They could be fine. Fixed mindset's not always a uh, necessarily a detrimental thing. Yeah, until you start thinking, oh, I don't want to do this. Maybe I'll look dumb. Oh, I made a mistake. Maybe I'll look dumb. But if you're super secure in your fixed mindset, you can look good. And... um not until later when other people start catching up with you or uh, the other thing is the Leon Bates studies were done in China, China and we just found out something really important. Um, there's this uh, PISA test that is a worldwide achievement test that's given to hundreds of thousands of 15-year-olds in 70 across 79 countries guess how many countries in how many countries a growth mindset was at some level, positively related to uh, PISA achievement test scores. How many countries? How many countries? I don't know. Seventy-six out of the seventy-nine. Oh, and China was one of the that didn't. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's well. That I'm, is very interesting. I'm so intrigued by that, and this is going to address a couple of things you asked. Oh. That is truly interesting. Okay. Now um, I'm in touch with a really fantastic young researcher in China. And he said a few things that were illuminating. One of them goes back to something you said before. He gave a gross mindset intervention to, you know, typically high achieving Chinese kids, it got them more intrinsically motivated, engaged with learning, it lowered their anxiety. But because it 
didn't raise their achievement because they were they already apparently work more than 50 hours a week on schoolwork out of school. Nobody cared. So he's upset about that, as you are and I am, that no one cares about the well-being, just the grades. But why was... I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) I'm not the only one. But also, why wasn't the Chinese score positively related to achievement, uh, the growth mindset? What is it about that? Is it something about the culture of work ethic? Yeah, even negatively related to achievement. Correct, correct. Because they found in their study that those with a fixed mindset actually had higher performance. Yes, and that that's what we're seeing in China mm-hmm. in the PISA results. And I, I'm working with the PISA people to figure that out. It could be that when you're in such a high-pressure cauldron, you know, they're heading toward... The, a big high stakes uh, test for getting into college. There, it's really high pressured. If you have a gross mindset, maybe you have a more sane attitude about some of the things. Maybe you think errors you can learn from. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Instead of errors are not permissible. So it's possible that under certain circumstances, um, having learning goals and uh, thinking errors are informative and um, valuing progress rather than immediate achievement, maybe you're a saner, happier kid, but maybe you're not at the top of the achievement distribution anymore. Well, that's really, would be really interesting for further research. Yeah. Cross-cultural patterns of fixed versus growth mindset intervention effectiveness. And what do they mean? Yeah. Yeah. That would be really, truly interesting. So I want to talk about, you know, this, uh, this, this quote unquote replication crisis that uh, have been happening in other fields. There's this paper I know you love, and I'm being sarcastic, by Alexander Bergone et al. In 2000, that just came out recently. And they really, you know, they take you to task on saying that you've overclaimed and overhyped with some of your prior quotes. Would you still say things like the view you adopt for yourself profoundly affects you lead your life? And they also take you to task for saying mindset creates different psychological worlds for students and forms the core of their meaning systems. So would you would you say that the, those things are uh, in light of the most recent effect sizes too dramatic? What would you say? Because they really take you to task to this, as you know. I know. And I appreciate that they're um, interested in mindsets and they challenge us and we get better. Uh, I think given what I said before, um, how hard it is to change grades, achievement tests, scores, anything in the real world, I think our effects are striking. The fact that it's a 50-minute program that changes achievement for lower achievers and um, changes 
the course taking a year later, the fact that it can be distributed widely at incredibly low cost, I think that's striking. I stand by striking. Wow. Well, maybe we can distinguish between striking. It sounds like you're saying striking given the uh, noisiness of the real world and all the other things that could have depressed the effect. I mean, how, how do we know objectively what is striking isn't without looking relative to other kinds of interventions and the goals and the outcomes? And yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some higher effects. Well, I've seen some like self-efficacy interventions, don't they? They're, they're quite higher in, in terms of effect size. Um, well, you have to have the benchmarks. Um, I don't know the self-efficacy literature or self-efficacy interventions. It's possible that they're higher. Um, we view gross mindset as one path to efficacy. Uh, the, the maintaining of efficacy over time in the face of challenge. I'm looking at, um, okay, so... Um, and thank you for being uh, so open. This is a credit to you to be so have such open, honest, intellectual honesty to discuss these things with me. So first of all, I want to say thank you. I'm looking at this. Uh, hey, Hattie Biggs and Purdy, 1996, found meta meta average effect size for the typical educational intervention on academic performance to be 0.57. It looks like the average. Uh, intervention is actually 0.57. All meta-analytic effects of mindset interventions and active performance, um, like in the CISC meta-analysis, are less than 0.35. Yeah. Um, and most were null, as in that, that's what the CISC et al. 2018 paper, and you yeah. found that as well. So, would I mean... You could see how someone could, you could, see how someone could say striking is, is, is over... Absolutely. Blown. Yeah. But it turns out that many of the studies in the Hattie interventions were the teaching of particular information in class and then the testing of that information in class, which is very different. We don't teach anything um, of content. We change a mindset and then we look at grades in the real world over time. Very different from teaching particular content and testing it. And I know John Hattie. He's looking into this now. And cool, he's cool. a big fan of our work. Um, I think he now agrees that you have different benchmarks for different kinds of interventions. Hmm. But, you know... Scott, the one thing I want to emphasize, we're not perfect and no intervention works everywhere. I think what I want to emphasize too is we're not done. We consider our intervention work to be in its infancy. I want to look back one day when we learn how to create gross mindset sustaining environments, and I want to look back and say, wow, we have much bigger effect sizes now, which we think we will have when we learn how to teach teachers to create gross mindset producing and sustaining environments. We don't know how to do that yet. We call this our 
next big Mount Everest. It's hard to change teachers. It's hard to change contexts. But we feel strongly that we will not understand the power of mindsets to change children's trajectories until we can help create those contexts. Thank you for uh, for elaborating that. You know, some educators might get this idea that they should be focusing on growth mindset interventions at the cost of actually teaching skills and abilities and, and knowledge. Can you kind of put this in context, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Mindset is not a miracle maker. Mindset is a growth mindset is something that supports your being a learner. And what we want to do is help teachers understand how to integrate it into their teaching and teaching practices effectively to support students' self-efficacy about learning as well as their learning. Um, we, I think we underestimated how easy it would be to identify the practices that really worked and to teach the practices that really work. In fact, in the beginning, I thought it was going to be just intuitive for teachers. Um, I got after I published the book Mindset, I got all these emails where teachers said, I did these four things and here's what happened in my class. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I still believe they did that. But now I think they already had kind of a growth mindset and an understanding of how to apply it. <laughs> and the book kind of crystallized it and allowed them to kind of run with it. But after that, um, aided by my Australian colleague, Susan Mackey, who said, you know, I'm seeing a lot of false growth mindset in classrooms. I, I re she really opened my eyes to the fact that it's really hard to deeply teach what a growth mindset is and how to apply it. And again, that's our next big Mount Everest. We don't know how to do that yet. That's exciting to me to hear about your, uh, your most excited, what you're most excited for in terms of future directions. So that's, that's the big mountain. Um, do you want to leave today? Um, I'm, so, I'm so respectful of your time and, and, res and, and excited that you spent so much time with me. But let me just leave here. Is there anything else you want to say directly talking to, to all the educators that are listening to this who really are excited about growth mindset? They want to apply in their classroom, but they want to, they want to do it the right way. You know, anything you can say to them? Uh, yes. Um, Perts.net, P-E-R-T-S dot net. Um, founded by David Pownescu, whom I mentioned earlier, um, gives some tips. But stay tuned, because over the next few years, 
we hope to collaborate intensely with teachers um, who create classrooms full of students with growth mindset. We hope to collaborate with many other researchers to climb that Mount Everest. And at the end of that, when we're at the summit, we would like to give you all the gift of a growth mindset curriculum that teachers can truly effectively implement. Well, the stakes are high here and uh, we have children's lives you know, at stake here. So I wish this research very well <laughs> and I wish you very well. And I, and I want to thank you. I want to end by saying when I put a, a call on my Twitter, I, I, are you on Twitter? You probably didn't even see this. I no. said, I said, I'm so excited. I'm talking with Carol Dweck. Any, anything you want me to ask you to ask? And I got so many questions to ask you today. And, but one thing I, and I wanted to leave you with someone just wrote, OMG, just tell her, thank you. So um, I just want to end on that note. <laughs> so thanks for um, all the work and energy you've put into this research over the years and your willingness and openness to seeing how the research evolves in the future. Thank you, Scott. This, it was just great talking to you. So exciting. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 